uh, Martin Luther, long before he was the bold reformer that we know him as, he was a man that was consumed with insecurity. He was a very insecure man. He threw himself meticulously observing traditions that were laid out by his teachers in the monastery. He began to see a lot of his insecurity was attached to the reality that he understood that his salvation was contingent upon his obedience to what the church had called him to do. For for Luther, at one point in his life, grace was seen as a currency. That if he put forth the effort, then God would dispense the grace. And so the more effort that he would put in, then the more grace that he would receive. This led Luther to dive deeply into trying to earn as much grace as he could. He would attend multiple services a day, beginning at that first one that was at 2 a.m., He would repeat prayers throughout the day. He would confess sins to a priest. He would beat his body so that he could offset the sins that he had committed in order to find peace. And history will tell us that Luther would have literally hour-long sessions of confession. And he would then walk away, and on the way going away from the confession, he would remember either a sin that he'd not confessed, or he would think about the heart attitude that led to the sin, and he would then come back and confess again. This brought a lot of agitation to those priests. It wasn't just the sin, it was the heart motives, and he was insecure. He was living in this loop of bondage, never really experiencing freedom. Luther hated himself, and he was terrified of God. But things began to change when Luther was tasked with the responsibility of preparing lessons that he would then teach others. He began to open his Bible and he began to study for himself. He came across two letters in particular, the letter that we're walking through, Galatians, and the letter to the church at Rome. And God opened his eyes to a different kind of gospel. Not a gospel of works where grace was a currency, but a gospel of faith where grace was a gift. He came to see that the righteousness that he needed, it couldn't be earned, but it must be received. And the way in which he would receive that righteousness and that grace would be to turn from all of his efforts and to trust in the work that Jesus had done That insecurity began to give way to security. That bondage began to give way to freedom. And all of this then left Luther with with one pressing question. And the question was this. If we don't have to use our lives to prove to God that we're worthy of his grace, then what's the point of our lives? If, If I don't have to put forth effort after effort after effort after effort in order to be made right with God then what do I do with my life? And it was that question that Luther took up in one of, the most, uh, one of his earliest writings, this little pamphlet entitled Freedom of a Christian. And this is what Luther wrote. It's a little lengthy, but I think it should be easy to follow along. Luther said, Why should I not therefore freely and joyfully with all of my heart and with an eager will do the things that I know that are pleasing 
and acceptable to a father who has overwhelmed me with his riches. But the question is, what does that look like? I myself will give myself as a Christ to my neighbor, just as Christ offered himself to me. I will do nothing in this life except what I see is necessary and profitable to my neighbor. Since through faith I have an abundance on all good things in Christ, behold, from faith does flow forth love and joy, and from love a joyful and willing free mind that serves one's neighbor. It doesn't take into account gratitude or ingratitude, praise or blame, gain or loss. A man doesn't serve so that he may put other men under his obligation. He doesn't distinguish between friends and enemies. He doesn't anticipate their thankfulness or unthankfulness. But he most freely and most willingly spends himself and all that he has for the good of another. If I could summarize what Luther said, Luther said, because you have received grace in Christ, you are free to no longer spend your life on yourself. You're free. You're free from what, consu- what consuming you most is what you need to do in order to earn something from God. And because you've received something from God, if you were a follower of Christ, you were then free to serve others. You're free to pour yourself out. And that's the point that Paul has been making in this letter, and that's the point that we're going to see him make in the letter this morning. You have been set free so that you can love. But before we get there, let's pray that the Spirit would give us an understanding that would lead to a change of heart. Our holy God, we come to you on the basis of the work of Christ. Our week has been filled with speech. We've been talking. Others have talked to us. We've even had words on in the background. And yet our desire is that you would squeeze out the words of others so that for the next few moments we would be able to hear you speak. God, would your word fill our hearing and thus expand our hearts. We confess we live by your word. We feed upon your word. In your word is life and health and strength. And this morning, we are in need of life and health and strength. God, would you help us from your word? Our path is hidden and our way is dark unless your word shines a light unto our feet and to our path. And so, Lord, I pray that we would hear and that we would receive and that we would believe and that we would gain life from your word. God, I pray that we would anticipate meeting with you, the living God. And so use these ordinary means of preaching your truth to change your people. And so I pray for that to happen, that the sermon that is heard would be far more effective than the one that is preached. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen. Well, I want to invite you to continue your worship this morning as we sit under and respond to 
the preaching of God's Word. I also invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 5, the passage that Bryn just read. As you're turning there, I think it may be helpful. We've had a few weeks away from this letter in our study through Galatians. It may be helpful to just remember where we've been thus far. The letter of Galatians is written to a primarily Gentile, a non-Jewish audience. Not just any audience, but a non-Jewish Christian audience. There were members of these churches throughout the region of Galatia. And these Christians were at risk of deserting the true gospel because false teachers had come in. These false teachers, known as Judaizers, were coming in and they were saying, faith is good, but faith is not enough. And so if you really want to be of Abraham, if you really want to be in the faith, if you really want to be of Christ, then you should also follow the law, particularly circumcision. And so Paul then begins the letter of Galatians, chapters 1 and 2. He defends his authority as an apostle. And he puts his authority as an apostle up against the false credentials of these false teachers. But he also, he, he not only defends his authority, he also defends the, the truthfulness of the gospel that he preaches. We see this in chapters 1 and 2. We get to chapter 3, and Paul makes this theological argument. He, he puts all of his case together, and he makes this theological argument for why these Galatian Christians should not submit to the law. We see this in chapters 3 all the way up to chapter uh, 4, verse 11. We hit chapter 4, verse 12, through chapter 5, verse 1. Paul calls them to be like him. Paul says, be like me as a man who is free. I'm no longer under the law, but I am free in Christ. And so Paul exhorts them to stand in the freedom that they have in Christ. We see this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. For it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Well, then we see in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 5, Paul puts together this tight argument that says, if you are going to seek to win God's approval and favor through circumcision, then you might as well understand that you're putting yourself under the burden of the whole law. You can't say only a part of the law is going to make me right before God. You have to say, I've, I've done all of the law. And that's what makes me right before God. And so Paul says, if you are going to put your confidence in any part of the law, it has to be put in all of the law. And if you put your confidence in the law, you will have just forfeited any benefit that comes from Christ. Paul wants them to understand that their plea is either all I have is Christ or I have no part in Christ. There's no middle ground. Christ either represents you entirely or he represents you not at all. And so if they go the way of circumcision and the law, then his perfect life doesn't count for them. If they go the way of the law, then his wrath-absorbing death doesn't count for them. If they go the way of the law, then his justifying resurrection doesn't, uh, doesn't count for them. And so Paul says you either boast of your salvation as completely a work of grace or you fall away completely from grace and you confess that your hope rests on you. And then we get to verse 5 of chapter 5. 
And Paul writes, for through the Spirit, by faith, we are, but through the, for we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. This is the key. Paul says, if everything I've said is true, then it's not by our works that we seek to gain God's favor. It's through the Spirit, by faith. Through the Spirit, by faith, we wait then for the hope of righteousness. Christians don't need to work to be made right with God because God has already applied righteousness to their account because of the work of Christ. And that righteousness is shown in waiting, waiting, hopeful, expectant, confident in the hope of our righteousness. I just want to remind you this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, the hope of and for your righteousness is Christ. That's your only hope. That's your only boast. And Paul says that those who are in Christ, they don't work to earn God's favor by faith through the Spirit. They, they confidently wait for His return. It's guaranteed it's on its way. It's just a matter of time. Uh, you and I understand this. We know how if we have a vacation coming up that we've been looking forward to, it holds our attention. Everything we do, ah, bad day, doesn't matter. I'm only two, two days away from vacation. I, right? There's something, this anticipation about the future of what's going to happen informs the present. And Paul says... The Christian's hope, his confident expectation for his righteousness is that they wait, they wait for Christ. And the Bible says that that could even happen this afternoon. The return of our hope of righteousness. I wonder if you think about this future. I just want to encourage you, don't wait until the next funeral to consider the reality of the brevity of this life. This day is coming. The way that we wait for that day is not by the power of our works of the law that gives us confidence to stand, but we wait by faith, trusting in the work of Jesus, and that that will be enough to stand accepted before our God. And then verse 6, he summarizes what he said thus far. For in Christ, Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. The issue is not circumcision or uncircumcision. Though these false teachers are teaching that, the issue is the presence of faith. And that faith works itself. It's evidenced in the way that we love. It, it, it's interesting. The more that we believe verse 5, the better we live out verse 6. The more joy we have in our Savior, the more we are driven by love and gratitude for our Savior and for others. This is why preaching the gospel to ourselves as Christians is vital. Because if we're constantly reminding of ourselves of the only hope that we have before a holy God, 
we live in light of this certain hope, if that's what we're constantly feeding and reminding ourselves of, then we will have a heart that's overflowing with love because we're free to spend our lives not on trying to be made right with God, but on remaining in the right standing that he has given us. We don't need to receive righteousness from what we do. It's already been given. We don't need a welcome from others. We have been welcomed in Christ. We are free to love others. We're free to seek the good of others. And so just think about this. If your faith in Christ gives you a certain hope, which overflows then as love for God and others, and we find that our love for God and others is running dry or cold, that would be an indicator that the lack of love that we have for God and for others is that we're not looking by faith at our hope. I mean, you just follow it. And we, okay, faith in Christ gives us a certain hope, and that hope overflows in how we love. And so if I'm struggling in loving God and loving others, then follow that back upstream. The issue is not I need six steps to better loving others. The issue is I need to spend more time in the hope, reminding myself of the hope that I have because of the work of Christ. What's interesting is if we were to keep reading in Galatians chapter 5, we get to verse 6. Verse 6 then it almost, it almost skips to verse 13. And we'll take a look at what verse thir- verses 13 through 15 say. But there's another section, verses 7 through 12, that Paul steps out of this discussion about what it looks like. What does faith working itself out in love look like? But before we get to that, verses 7 through 12, Paul makes a passionate appeal to these Christians. And that will serve as our first sermon point. There's only two. The first one is this. Remain in faith. Remain in faith. Uh, Listen again to what Paul says. He's talking about working faith, working itself out in love. He gets to verse 7, and you see he sort of steps out of the, the case and the flow of logic and argument that he was making, uh, making, and he says something to these Galatians. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who caused you a little leaven, leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. One author, commentator, says... This section, you can hear Paul writing with snorts of indignation. In case you missed it, just go back and read verse 12. Uh, Paul is emotional. 
He's personal. He's aggressive. He's urgent in his rebuke of these Galatian Christians. And yet what's crazy is that he's also hopeful. What drives all of this appeal is a pleading that they would remain in the faith that they first came to believe. He begins with this rhetorical question in verse 7 that's intended to help them see what has been happening. It's as if they started out of the gates really well running this race, but someone has, has broken in. Someone has come in and either diverted their direction or is preventing them from running the race faithfully. These false teachers had come in and they had taken, they, they made these Galatians take a turn where they began to run off course. How do we know they were running off course? Verse 7 tells us, because they're no longer obeying the truth. Contrary to what these false teachers were saying, they were not the good coaches that they pretended to be. In fact, they were deadly obstacles, preventing some from running faithfully the race in which God had marked out for them. Well, that's what we see in verse 8. This persuasion, this different trajectory of running, that didn't come from the one who called you. This is not of God. So contrary to what they stood up and said, their message made clear that they were not of God. I just think that's a helpful lesson for you and I. We want to have our ears open so that when we hear the professions that people make, yes, I believe this is of God. And we want to then ensure that the, the life and the ministry that flow from that profession is consistent. I mean, these false teachers were coming up saying, this is of God. And yet their message and their practice, their ministry was running contrary to that. Paul then reminds them that even such a small amount of false teaching or error will corrupt and infect the whole church. That's what he says in verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I understand this to be a corporate application, right? That false teaching anywhere in the church runs the risk of corrupting all. I also think that it could be applied that a, li a little bit of leaven, a little bit of legalistic self-reliance in one area of your life has just nullified you standing upon grace in all other areas. And so this was a call to not only rid themselves of the leaven, but to also address this false teaching that was spreading. And so coming off of verse 7 what in the world happened? You didn't start this way. Who has blocked you? Verse 8, those who are teaching you and those who you are following are not of God. Verse 9, this is going to corrupt the whole church. I expect verse 10 to come with a hammer for Paul to sort of begin to lay down with a little bit more authority, a little bit more direct rebuke. And yet I'm surprised when I read verse 10. I have confidence in you, if you're an underliner, the next three words are the key, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. 
But the one who's disturbing you, they will bear judgment, whoever he is. Paul issues forth encouragement to them. Paul has confidence that these Galatian believers will agree with his assessment that is presented in this letter. This is so good for my heart. I read the letter of 1 Corinthians. I just see this church that's so messed up. And at the very beginning, Paul can just identify evidences of grace. I'm just going, Paul, look at the church. And Paul is saying, Justin, look at their Savior. And I think in reading the letter of Galatians, Paul, look at the church. And I understand Paul to go, Justin, look at their Savior. His confidence doesn't arise because he gets news that the false teachers have gone away. His confidence doesn't arise because he gets this good report that now everything's drastically different and he doesn't even have to send the letter. No, the same concern that he has had for the first four chapters, he still has as he's writing chapter five. And yet there's a confidence in the Lord. Because Paul believes that it is the Lord's grace who will sustain this church all the way to the end. I can look at my life, I can look at our church, and I can just go, we have so far to go. And yet, I'm reminded Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. And Paul models this for us. And this is helpful for you and I because in this, in this section where he's going to get to how do we serve one another in love, it is really, really helpful to not only have the perspective of the person in front of you the person that you're doing life with, the persons in this room with you, to not only see them as they are today, but to also be reminded that God is doing a work in them and to think about who they will be in 200 years. And he makes clear that there will indeed be judgment, and this judgment is going to fall uniquely on these false teachers. It's what James tells us in James chapter 3, verse 1, about this stricter judgment that will come to those who teach. And then he adds this phrase, whoever he is, at the end of verse 10. I, I don't think that is a statement of ignorance for Paul. I don't think Paul is saying, I don't know who these people are, so whoever they are, they will receive judgment. I understand Paul to say, anyone who's a false teacher, who teaches you something contrary to the gospel, will indeed bear the judgment for that. So it doesn't matter who they are. Again, what's the message? Remain in the faith. You started well. This teaching is not of God. It will, in fact, corrupt the whole church. 
remain in faith. And then verse 11, it seems that there was, uh, verse 11 seems to be addressing this line of reasoning that was being spread around potentially by these false teachers. Uh, Perhaps they were maintaining, well, how is it that Paul is going to preach so hard against circumcision? But let's just think about Paul's life. And perhaps they were looking back to his pre-conversion, where Paul would have been a proponent of circumcision. A lot of commentators think that this is even referencing the events of Acts 16.3. If you were to flip over to Acts 16.3, what you would find is Paul putting forth Timothy to be circumcised. Not in order to be made right with God, but to remove this stumbling block. These Jews couldn't get over this message that was coming to them by one who wasn't circumcised. And Paul says, Timothy gladly will be circumcised so as to allow the message to not be hindered. And it's just helpful for us to know anytime Paul is presented with this topic of circumcision, if it if it wasn't presented in a way that it was a requirement for salvation, Paul was fine to say, sure. But anytime it was connected to a requirement for right standing before God, Paul was adamant. No. We see this in in chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Because these people, these false brethren, were secretly coming in and they were seeking to spy out our liberty. And so what he's saying is that some people were saying, yeah, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to be circumcised. And in Titus's case, Paul says, no, he will not be circumcised because it's not required. But in Timothy's case, it was, we're trying to understand the message of the gospel. And this is a barrier. This is an obstacle. Let's remove the obstacle so that the message can go forth. And he knew that if he wanted to avoid persecution, all he had to do was preach works. This is what he'll say if you look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 12. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh, they try to compel you to be circumcised. Why? Simply so they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So Paul says, here's the motive for the message. The motive is this. If these guys can come in, if they can preach a message that will appeal to your pride, you will take it. Because there's something within every one of us that says, I have to earn this. I want to show that I have contributed something. And Paul says, anytime someone stands up and preaches that, yeah, you avoid persecution. Because everybody wants to say, I worked for that. I earned that. Paul says, but circumcision nullifies the cross because it makes the pathway to God not one of works, but one of faith. The cross is offensive because the cross runs counter to our pride. Righteousness is found only in what Christ has done for sinners. And so when someone tells you they can do something in order to be righteous, that is appealing to their pride. 
And Christianity is not a faith that appeals to man's pride. And so let's just be clear. If you want to flatter someone, don't preach the gospel to them. The message of the gospel says that we can't do anything. It says that we can't meet the standard of righteousness that's required before God. It says that nothing that we do is good enough to contribute to a righteous standing. Therefore, the message of the cross says, stop looking to yourself and look to Christ. Christ is the hero. Christ is the righteousness. Christ is the only one. His life, his death, his resurrection. And that is offensive to human pride and self-sufficiency. And when this message goes forth, men either have their eyes opened and they love the truth, or their eyes are still blind and they hate it and they fight against it and they will even persecute those who proclaim it. Because the cross declares the radical truth about ourselves that we don't want to face. That we are sinners in need of a Savior and we have a total inability to save ourselves. And that if there will be complete satisfaction of God's justice, His wrath will be poured out upon sinners. Then the only hope forever having God's wrath satisfied is that his wrath is poured out on us because of what we deserved or it's poured out on a substitute taking what we deserve. And the good news of the Christian faith, it's not rules so that you can know what to do in order to be made right with God. It is freedom. It's freedom because of what Christ has done to make you right with God. And you must be willing to forsake it all. Everything that has led you to this life of unrighteousness. And again, you may, you may be thinking to yourself, I'm not that bad. If you can't keep the whole law perfectly, you are that bad. And the good news is that Christ has kept the law perfectly for those who can't. And he has absorbed God's wrath for those who deserve it. And he has raised again from the dead in order to ensure that all who turn from their sin and place their faith and trust in him, they too will rise and live with him forever. If you're not a Christian this morning, I would just plead with you. I would plead with you. Do not get swept away because of your pride, thinking that somehow you can make yourself right with God. You can't. You won't. Lay down all of those efforts and trust in the work of Jesus. And so Paul doesn't preach circumcision. Instead, he preached the offensive cross. And, and if you're not a Christian, I just want, there, there may be something within you. Most of the times when we're offended by something, what we do is push that thing away. And we think that the reason that we're offended is because that thing is not true. And the Bible makes clear, the cross doesn't offend us because it's wrong. 
The cross doesn't offend man because it's not true. The cross offends us because we're proud. And when we think the offense is in the other thing, we're prone to dismiss that thing. And I would just encourage you, stare into that offense this morning. Consider the offense of the cross. Because just maybe what you think will lead you to life is actually leading you to death. And that which will require you to die is the gateway for finding life. And so Paul doesn't preach circumcision. We don't preach circumcision. Praise be to God. Your sin plus your works equals you're still in your sin. Your sin plus faith in the work of Christ me equals you're forgiven. You're free. Non-Christian, run and find this freedom today. Talk to anyone that's here. It would be our joy. And Christian, don't grow weary of preaching this message because every day we are enticed to just a little bit more. Got to work. Got to do work. Got to do more. If he's going to be happy, live in the freedom that Christ has provided. And that he just wraps up this whole section with this strong word of judgment that says, okay, so if cutting a little bit is good, huh, let's cut it all off. Let's go all the way. And I think what Paul knows is Deuteronomy 23.1, that those who castrate themselves are not worthy, are not clean to approach a holy God. I think Paul is saying, I wish they would just make it clear that they're no better than the pagans who do not believe. And so Paul appeals, remain in faith. But he also picks back up on this theme of love in verses 13 through 15. Second sermon point is this, serve in love. So remain in faith and then serve in love. And this we see in verses 13 through 15. And if I could just summarize the logic of verses 13 through 15, it's simple. So Paul reiterates, what's the foundation of the Christian life? You were called to freedom. If you are in Christ, you are free. Paul has been laboring throughout the letter of Galatians. Live in your freedom. You're free. And then what he does is he, he gives a twofold command, a negative and then a positive. And then he gives a twofold incentive that's a positive and a negative. So he says, you're free, verses 13 through 15. And then he says, negative, positive, positive, negative. Do not turn the negative. Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the, for the flesh. Positive. Use your freedom to serve one another in love. Why positive? Because the whole law is fulfilled in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why negative? Because if you bite and devour one another, you will be consumed 
by one another. So that's the flow. You are free. Two-fold command. Don't turn your freedom for an opportunity for the flesh. That's negative. Positively, through love, serve one another. Why? Positive? Because in serving one another this way, the command is fulfilled. Love your neighbor as yourself. And negatively, because if you bite and devour one another, you will be consumed by one another. And so what's the main point? The main point of this section, 13 through 15, is serve one another in love. And so he begins by saying, this freedom that you have been given, do not use it as an opportunity for the flesh. Flesh here in Paul's writings all throughout Galatians doesn't refer to skin. Flesh in Galatians refers to the selfish desires that we have, particularly apart from Christ, but that do follow us though we are in Christ. And let me just be clear, we are free. Christians, you are freed from the power of sin in your life. You are not freed from its presence yet. And so that's why it follows. And so flesh then, or these, these uh, selfish desires and this way of life that says, I'm going to use everything I can to fulfill these selfish desires that I have. Paul's addressing this wrong belief. This wrong belief that would say, well, okay, if I am no longer in bondage of sin, but now that I'm free, then I'm free to do whatever my flesh wants to do. Right? All throughout the letter of Galatians, Paul has been sort of taking shots at legalism. I have to do this in order to be right. He now begins to address the other ditch on the other side of the road that says, well, if I'm free, then I can do anything that I want. I mean, if I'm no more loved and forgiven by Christ on my worst day than on my best day, huh, then I'll do whatever I want. And in fact, some Galatians were using their freedom to sin. And that's what Paul wants to address. They were using their freedom as a license to sin all the more. And so I just want you to know, perhaps this morning, you're thinking, whenever I can live how I want to live, that is freedom. If you believe that living however you want to live is freedom, you don't have a biblical understanding of freedom. You are free from the law as a system of salvation, how we earn salvation. You are free from that. But you're not free from the law that reflects the character of God that would so help his people know how to walk. And anytime your desires run contrary to this good law, not that you're keeping in order to earn something, but that's helping you and protecting you, you submit those desires to God's good word. And so perhaps you're thinking, well, if God says I should do things, then how is that free? Well, because freedom isn't found in the lack of restrictions or boundaries. Freedom is found in having the right restrictions and boundaries. It's not a lack of them. Uh, we're surrounded by restrictions and boundaries every day. 
If you were to hop on 275 right now, you would find lane markers and signs and shoulders and medians. And those restrictions are not there to hurt you. They're actually there to keep you safe. And so we then obey, we follow laws and God's goodness in and through his word, not because we're trying to earn acceptance. We follow that because we have it. No longer is the law like the judge and we're the criminal that stands constantly to convict us and wrong us and sentence us. No, we're now like the child who comes to the father who says, I don't know how to move. I don't know what to do in this situation. And out of loving care, the father says, this is how you do this. And these are some restrictions. Not because I hate you. In fact, because I love you. And so don't think freedom is when I get to do whatever I want and God tells me nothing. No, that's actually bondage that the human race was thrown into with the first sin. We are free from sin. We're not free to sin. That's what Paul's saying. We have freedom no longer to wallow in fleshly appetites, but to starve them. We have freedom not to abuse and hurt others, but to love them. We have a freedom not to disregard the law and live how we want, but to to live in humble love under the law. And when we use our freedom for more slavery, it shows us that the gospel hasn't gripped our hearts. Freedom that leads us to holiness will always lead us to happiness. I wonder, do you believe that? I think many Christians can think, if I'm going to live free to holiness, then that means I'm going to be unhappy. I wonder this morning, is there anything that you're allowing in your life that doesn't honor God? And the excuse that you're using is, well, I'm doing it because I'm free. He loves you just as much as he ever will in Christ but he also loves you enough to call you out of that, which is damaging or risking your freedom. The natural destination of such use of freedom we find in verse 15. If you use your freedom to serve selfish desires, the flesh then just know what that's going to lead to is biting and devouring and being consumed by one another. If you say, I am going to use my freedom to do what I'm doing, and you see that as this path, this, this line, this road, and someone else says, I am going to do whatever I want to do, and they see that as this road, oftentimes we can think, yeah, everybody's just doing it. And they're running parallel to each other. And yet the reality of a broken world is that when I live selfishly and you live selfishly, we're coming to a point where those things will collide. And what happens when my selfish desires collide against your selfish desires? We begin to bite and devour one another. What will happen 
is that the community that you're in will be consumed by conflict. And so don't use your freedom to serve the flesh. If your relationships are marked by sharp biting back and forth, not a lot of unity, you may be doing that. That would be a good thing to confess to the Lord and to turn from and walk anew by the grace that is there in Christ. But not just the negative. He, he states something positively. How do we use freedom positively? If we're not supposed to do flesh opportunities, and that leads to biting and devouring one another, then what are we supposed to do? And he tells us in verse 14, we are to, or at the end of 13, we are through love are to serve one another. And then verse 14, he says the whole law is fulfilled in that. That statement of loving others as ourselves, quoting Leviticus 19. This is a radical alternative to the most popular version of freedom that we live in. That, that we live with. The most popular version of freedom that's being heralded today in our world and in our culture defines your responsibility only in the negative. Don't do this to someone. Don't do that to someone. Make sure you don't do this. And Paul says that's not going far enough. It's not just make sure you don't do something. It's make sure you do something. He's calling us to go beyond not hurting others to leveraging everything we have so that we can meet the needs of those around us. Paul says, love them like you love yourself. This is not biblical justification for you to get away and learn how to love yourself. This is biblical assumption that you already are the best lover of yourself. You know what it's like to love yourself more than anyone else. The law assumes, Jesus assumes, Paul assumes that we are great self-lovers. And what Paul does here is he says, take all of the energies and the efforts that terminate on yourself and redirect those to others. Freedom that you've been given, not just to justify yourself, now you get to spend on loving and serving others. You begin to be less focused on the needs that you have that bring you discouragement when you begin to lovingly serve others. It doesn't mean that those needs and discouragements, it's not that they disappear. But many in the church are so ravaged, ravaged by criticism and discontentment about what others aren't doing for them that they've not yet thought about, what if I just flipped that? Or maybe they've thought about it and they've tried it but they've not persisted in it. To whatever extent you choose to fixate and focus on your needs and your desires, it's to that extent that community with others is going to be very, very difficult. And here's why. Because no one will pay more attention to you than you. No one. No one out there will have the same resilience as you do to pursuing you. If you are the standard of others' interest, that they sh others should have this much interest like I have of myself, you will always be disappointed. But Paul says freedom is found in looking to love and take interest and serve others. 
This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He says, we need only reverse the you and I in our relationships. We need only to put ourselves in the, others, uh, in the place of others and others in our own. You see, when you and I reverse the I and the you, then the list of things that you wish you were getting from others becomes the list of ways that you serve others. Like, I wish, I wish all of these things were happening. And now, just flip the you and I. Now I have ways in which I can be serving others. So think about it. Friends don't seem to understand you. Just reverse it. How hard am I working to understand them? The church doesn't care about the details of your life. They're not checking in. How hard am I concerned about the details in the lives of others? How much am I checking in? I think this will not immediately transform your experience of community, but it will over time. It will change the flavor of the relationships that you have. And it will do it because you're free. You can be free from your frustrations even this morning and find joy in community. You will begin to have your needs met more securely in serving others than trying to hold on to them so tightly based on your terms. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. When we die to ourselves, God gives us everything that we need. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his word. He's given us his people. God gives you what you need. And good news, he doesn't need you to constantly be running quality control. Take yourself out of that seat of prominence and take on the posture of servant. And you say, well, this sounds good, but it's also risky. Because what if I give to others and I don't get anything in return? I could say, yeah, I'm in, I'll do it, and yet no one else will do it. Where do we get the power then to do this? The power comes through this gospel that Paul has been preaching all letter. It's the only resource. It's the only thing that can free us from self-love. I love what John Piper says. He says, because love is motivated out of the joy of sharing our fullness, the works of the flesh are motivated by the desire to fill our emptiness. Paul says, or, uh, John Piper says, love is motivated by the joy of sharing our fullness. But works of the flesh are motivated by the desire to fill our emptiness. And so when we love, we are free. We're not enslaved to use things or people to fill our emptiness. Because love is the overflow of our fullness. And so love then is the only behavior that we can do in freedom. When God frees us from guilt and fear and greed and he fills us with his all-satisfying presence, then the only motive that's left is the joy that's found in sharing from our fullness, in loving others. When God is our portion and we are truly free, then we will serve one another through love. Love. 
I don't know if there's a harder command in all the Bible than to love your neighbor as yourself. Maybe to love God with everything you have. But just practically, it means if you want to be fed when you're hungry, then go and feed others when they're hungry. If you want to find your neighbor, it means you want to find your neighbor a job just as much as you're glad to have a job. It means you want to help your fellow student get an A just as much as you want to get an A. You want to help the person that's stalled on the freeway just as much as you're glad that you're not stalled on the freeway. You want to give the, the teammate a chance to play just as much as you want to play the whole game. You want to share Christ with your neighbor as much as you're glad to know that you are in Christ yourself. Covenant Life Church, remain in faith and serve in love. This is the good works that God has appointed before the foundation of the world for his people to walk into. May we be motivated by grace and joyfully obedient to what he calls us to do. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would not move today from being anchored in Christ. That even you would use this sermon to just double down, to drill the anchor deeper. That we would be more convinced than ever before that we want Christ more than anything else. And so may we throw off everything that is entangling us that's wooing us away from Christ. May we be steadfast in Christ. And I'm thankful that we can be, not because of our ability, but because of your grip. You do hold us. And God, I pray that you would also grow Covenant Life Church to be a church that serves one another in love. And so where we need to confess and turn from self-seeking desires... I pray that you would help us. And so in this moment of silence, just speak to us, having used your word to now show our minds and our hearts what obedience looks like. May we walk faithfully before our good, holy God. And so speak to us now, we pray.